by Playfair Capital. Rethink the way you live and work. Hello and welcome to The Chess Pit, the podcast where three guys talk about chess occasionally. I'm John McKenzie, black currants on my paint, the field my canvas, and I'm joined as always <laughs> by my good friend Phil Makepeace. You filthy capitalist, you've taken the Ribena <laughs> shilling. Hello, I'm fine, yes. <laughs> and my other good friend, Christopher Russell. Good evening, morning. I don't know. It depends where you are. Hello. How the hell are we doing, chaps? I'm good. I've recently gone back into... Um, do you remember Round the Twist? Ooh. That TV show based on the Paul Jennings books. Did it have something to do with the lighthouse? Yeah, yeah. They lived in a lighthouse, yeah. It's set in Australia. Uh, there's actually going to be a fair bit of Australia in my bits today. Um, yeah, I, I was just trying to find a show for... I think a six or seven year old girl who that would kind of make sense for them and i sort of suggested round the twist and um then obviously dived back into it myself and um i think it's great it's, it's just it's just completely inoffensive fun silly kids tv but what's not to love really doesn't it have a good theme tune as well it's got one of the longest theme tunes in the history of the world. It's like eighty second, eighty five seconds long. The the um the closing theme tune. What's it about? I've never heard of it. What's it about? Um, it's just yeah. You, if you've not read Paul Jennings' books, you've missed out. They're they're all sorts of um sort of weird and wacky um like sci fi books for kids, but they're not sci fi at all. It's just it's just silly um things like a a remote control that you can use on human beings to make them eat faster and freeze them and make them repeat what they've done and all of this stuff um yeah round the twist was based on paul jennings books and there was three or four seasons i've got the box set somewhere but i just found these on on youtube um yeah so just a little bit i mean we've talked a bit before john haven't we you you said you were you last year you were going back into watching like the secret garden and stuff so i guess it's similar to that wild nostalgia I accused you of fancying the pig from Charlotte's Web. Ah, <laughs> that rings a bell. How about you, Chris? How are you? Yeah, I am. Well, it's strange. From loads and loads of chess suddenly, and now we've kind of eased off again. Things seem to be back to reality and normality. That There isn't really uh, any big tournaments suddenly again after us having a kind of glut of chess over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we can go back to not talking about chess again. I feel in my element perfect there was a a recent tournament that just ended that magnus carlson won but not that that narrows anything down when it comes to chess in the modern age well a tiny bit right hasn't he got this hoodoo over not having won a tournament since he turned 30 uh, and this is his first tournament victory since then uh, but in saying that i'm not quite sure how long ago it was that he turned 30 we might not be talking a huge amount of time it was late november yeah okay yeah, so six whole months of him not winning a tournament. Disgusting. Not even that, it's like four. Four, <laughs> isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, that was the, the Meltwater tournament, is that right? Hmm. And he beat Hikaru in the final. Uh, but yeah, it was supposed to be a fun tournament. There's some exciting youngsters in that tournament. I think young Pragnananda did quite well from uh, from by all um, accounts. I think he pulled off a draw, didn't he, with Magnus, which is exciting. It's good to see Gawain in it as well, mm. that he doesn't get as many invites as perhaps he ought to so it's nice to see him taking part in one of these big events and nice to see him beating wesley so oh yeah yeah that was a mm. good game 
that did the rounds uh, when he caught him in a nice trap. It was nice seeing uh, seeing him tweeting after the tournament that, apart from in the Wesley So game, he claimed that he just completely forgot all of the moves he'd prepared in each game. <laughs> so yeah, it would be nice to see him uh, doing a bit more uh, tournament appearances. And yeah, I guess there's a lot of pressure on you when you don't get invited to many mm. tournaments, like you said, to, to then perform in those tournaments. So hopefully now he'll get the chance to do that a little bit more. Right, we should kick off this podcast as we always do by talking about the dying tones of spy law uh echoing around whatever receptacle it is that we are listening to this or well, i guess we're not really listening to it we're being it but uh spy law are the band who sing our theme tune and the lead singer of spy law is a guy called hugh breakin and hugh has views and this week's view from hugh is i hope you voted labor it's quite appropriate timing i suppose given tomorrow's shenanigans hmm yeah, we're, we're not the BBC. We can say this stuff. Mm. So, yeah, we've got lots of local elections. Um, I'm guessing all three of us have completely different things to vote for because I've got, um, I think I've got local, like, neighbourhood, um, like, properly local elections. And I've also got a referendum on our neighbourhood plan. Whereas, Chris, do you have, um, you have the mayor? I do have the mayor. I'm not sure what else, actually, to be honest. Uh, but that's the one where we've been leafleted and variously targeted through uh, that's the vegan but i don't know what else i've got the pleasure of no neighborhood referendums i don't think but we'll see john what do you have we have the police and crime commissioner Ooh. but i'm not going to vote tomorrow i don't think controversial mm. yeah you're not even going to spoil your ballot write them a little poem nah you're gonna write you're tearing me apart police <laughs> as your little <laughs> protest line yeah I'm not so much protesting as just completely disenfranchised these days. The London Square thing is mad at the moment, where you've got various celebrities and Count Binface is running. Um, I'm assuming you're voting for him, Chris. Well, I wouldn't reveal such information to the masses, but yes, of course, naturally I will be. He's pretty much the uh, the personality that you would take if chess was more pseudonymous, wouldn't you? He'd be the Count Bin face of chess. Do you think? It'd be good if he did a bit more of that, wouldn't it? A bit more fancy dress into chess tournaments. There's nothing stopping you from doing that, is there? Or maybe there is. Maybe there's a rule about it. I don't know. That's actually true. I've no idea if they have a dress. If he turned up dressed up as Spider-Man, would you get in trouble? <laughs> there's laws about bringing the game into disrepute. But if you're only bringing fashion into disrepute, it's probably fine. There's this guy in Bristol who wears... Doesn't he wear, like, enormous, like, animal hats? Oh, I know his name, but I'm not going to say it because it seems a bit rude. Yeah, I think this this is a thing. I assume that's fine. You're covered for any kind of headgear you want. There's yes, there's a guy John who goes round like for NCL and stuff. He just has a different like animal hat, so he'll just have like a. It's almost like one of those kind of furs. So he'll just have a fox, and then next day he'll rock up with, with a sort of bear just looming out at you. It's weird, isn't it, that you don't have more, like, poker approaches to fashion when it comes to chess? Because you could do the same thing, right? Rock up with a with a hoodie on and... A glasses and... Glasses and... Yeah. yeah. Why is there no such thing as a chess face if there's a poker face as well? What is your chess face, Chris? I think just mild disgust at my own position <laughs> is my general chess face. I just look like I'm not enjoying myself. Yeah, well, no one should enjoy themselves while I'm playing chess. That's, <laughs> that's my number one rule of chess. If you're enjoying yourself, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you don't consider poker attire, Phil, as a potential chess garb. I feel like this definitely happens, doesn't it? People like um, 
Eric Hansen quite like the hoodie look, do they not? Well, isn't there that Korchnoi, him deploying his reflective glasses photo? Yes. That might be the closest we come. Yeah, and he had, what, Dr... Dr... All I can think of is Dr. Zhivago. It clearly wasn't Dr. Zhivago in in the audience trying to... Work is over. (laughs) Dr. Zukar was Karpov's physician or Karpov's something. Yeah, he was Karpov's assistant in the 1978 World Championship. Dr. Vladimir Zhukar. Korchnoi accused him of disrupting his thought processes by attacking him telepathically. (laughs) Hey, when that happens... Yeah, I mean, pre- previous world championships, that those kind of world championships, all the ones in the 70s and 80s were just um, were just wild for this kind of stuff. And then it resurfaced again, didn't it, with Kramnik and Topalov, where was it Topalov accused Kramnik of having moves printed on toilet paper or the other way around? So that they'd have like a whole like lines of opening theory. Toilet paper printed on moves. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so you'd go into the loo and you'd have all this preparation there for him just in inside the loo roll. There was that accusation. Yeah, you can get rid of your crime really easily, can't you? Yeah. I'm not entirely sure that having preparation on your toilet paper would be particularly useful, really, but I suppose I suppose if you're struggling with a move, yeah, where better to struggle with movements than in a toilet cubicle, I suppose. Well, quite. <laughs> <laughs> I did read yesterday about um, the old German like one-time pads that we used during the war with the cipher for the spies. Um, they were written on, on toilet paper. and the, the, or Actually, no, they were written on things with the, then later used as toilet paper. And so there was one instance of yeah British intelligence going through various latrines at German barracks to try and find these one-time pads. In a rather less highbrow reference, I've been reading Train Spotting again. And so I've just been enjoying the scene with the toilet in the bookmakers um, for any further toilet stories that we'd like to share. (laughs) Reading it again. Mm. Is this a favourite book of yours? I wouldn't say a favourite, but I read it a good long time ago now and I'm giving it another spin. You don't think there's other books that you could read that you've never read before? That's true. It's possible. It's too late now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm committed. You started so you'll finish. Are you like that with books? Do you feel kind of somehow compelled that once you've reached a certain point that you have to kind of go through with it? Not really. I, I don't know. I spent a long time in academia, so I often just read the intro and the conclusion and sort of guess what happened in the middle. So nice. I've never really had that, that aspect with, with books in, in general. But yeah, if I'm not enjoying a book, I generally tend to sort of give up on it and move on to something else and then not beat myself up about it. Um, but I don't know. Sometimes I, I force myself to get through books a bit. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I, I kind of. I'm not very good at rereading books. I kind of feel as though there's so many books in the world that I'd rather just read another one. I quite like it though. I kind of feel that if enough time has gone past between readings, you're kind of coming at it from a very different mm. perspective and sort of life experience. So you're bringing something new to the table. So it kind of feels feels like a different work in some sense. It depends on the kind of book, right? Mm. Because if you if you're doing it with a murder mystery, you're going to get far less out of it the second time around. But if you're doing it with something like On the Road by Jack Car- Jack Kerouac, something a bit more kind of existential and um yeah, meaningful or non-fiction, then yeah, absolutely rereading so because you yeah, because those books are not really about what the text is it's about what the text can offer you at various parts in your life so me reading on the road when i was 15 is completely different to me reading on the road when i'm 31 yeah sure and you definitely get 
different things out of books at different points when you read them for sure yeah and it's no different for chess books as well like there's masses i got out of um seven deadly chess sins when i first read it when i was in my teens and then there are new things now that i can just pick up um yeah chess books are particularly good for that reading a chess book when you're at a particular level when you'll get things out of it that you'll not get out of it later is also um, definitely a thing so long as it's a good chess book i think you're mentioning seven deadly chessons and i agree that would be something that you could keep dipping in and out of and gather new new things from i played a game of chess today and won Mm. first time for everything i guess It was against a mate who's very much not very good at chess, though, so it doesn't really count. But I did a really nice mating pattern. You would have been proud of me if you'd have seen it. I also find it quite hard playing against rubbish players because I think they're usually quite attacking, and so you can get like carried away defending them. And just when really all you need to do is just counter attack them, and and usually you'll do okay. There's my tip for you guys. Don't know if you've ever come across that one before or thought about it. Anyway, enough of my <laughs> witterings, Philip. <laughs> Philip Makepeace Esquire has a quiz. Philip has a quiz it. Yeah, Phil has a quiz. And uh, this week we're going to delve into the world of variants. Chess variants. Now, John, you're automatically at a disadvantage here because Chris is the former circular chess world champion, as he has told us. Mm. So maybe he has some knowledge of these. However... I doubt it. (laughs) What we're going to do is uh, there are going to be some names that I'm going to throw at you. Some of these names are have had chess variants named after them. Some of these names are members of the New Zealand cabinet. <laughs> Your job is to find out, is to discern which of them have chess variants named after them and which ones are cabinet members in New Zealand. We'll do this penalty shootout style again, as always, and it is John to go first. Before we begin, I just want to put on the record that Chris is always at an advantage in these quizzes because they're about chess and I don't know anything about chess. So I'm just clearing the record on that one. But anyway, go ahead. Maybe you know more of the New Zealand cabinet. Uh, That's true. Maybe. My tastes are unusual or whatever the quote is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, John. Jesson Moore. How on earth are you spelling that? J-E-S-O-N-M-O-R. I'm going for variant. It is a Mongolian variant where there are nine knights on on a nine by nine board and the first to occupy the square E5 and then leave it wins the game. So the central square on a nine by nine board. Jessen Moore. Okay, lovely. It doesn't sound like a very exciting game to me. It seems like a really, really niche variant as well because you need a special board plus a very heavily knight-infused chess set just to be able to play it. There we go. John goes 1-0 up. Don't get bitter, Chris. <laughs> get better. Okay, Chris. Mukui. M-C-C-O-O-E-Y. Mukui. Chess or cabinet? Chess. It is. It's a hexagonal variant, which was invented by David Mukui, where there are uh, seven pawns instead of nine, and pawns capture forwards. Mm. So there we go. Capture forwards anyway, don't they? No. Pawns capture diagonally. Yeah, but it's still forwards, isn't Not it? Not really. Not in front pawns of you. Pawns can't move backwards, can they? Mm. You're always telling me that, Phil. You're always telling me that. <laughs> That's true. Um, okay, so it's 1-1. One, one. John. Hipkins. I'm going cabinet just by dint of the fact we've had two chess variants. 
Chris Hipkins is the Minister for Education and the Leader of the House. 2-1 to John. Chris. Balbo. B-A-L-B-O. I'll go chess. It is a board with 70 squares and there is no castling. That's about it. How would... 70 doesn't feel like a good number for... Was it a 10 by 7 then? Must be, yeah. Hmm. It's got a bit more space, so it takes you a while to engage. Oh, so it's 10 by 7 and... And you're, you're minus a pawn, but presumably oh. not minus a rook. So I'm not entirely sure how that works. But anyway, <laughs> Balbo, so that is correct. So it's 2-2. Two, two. John, Chad. I'm going to go cabinet. Kings are limited to 3x3 three three castles on a 12x12 12 12 board dominated by eight rooks per side, which can promote to queens. It's a very nuts chess variant, I'm afraid. It stays at 2-2. Two, two. That sounds pretty fun. What's a three by three castle? Did you investigate that? No, I've just gone through these. It's, uh, <laughs> it's invented by Christian Freeling in 1979. Okay, we'll give him a ring. Right, it stays at 2-2. Chris, to take the lead. Mahuta. M-A-H-U-T-A. Chess. Nanaya Mahuta is the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Associate Minister for Maori Development. Hard luck. Okay, stays at 2-2. Two, two. John. Jackson. Chabin up. Willie Jackson is the Minister for Maori Development. No associates here. It's 3-2 to John. Right, Chris, to tie it up. Sepuloni. I'll go cabinet. Carmel Sepuloni is the Minister for Social Development and Employment. 3-3. Three, three. Right, John. Nash. Um, cabinet again. Stuart Nash is the Minister of Forestry. Chris, to take us to... Well, to basically draw, because there's no sudden death. I've only done I've only done 10. Chris. Logan. L-E-G-A-N. Chess. A reluctant chess. It is played as if the board would be Oof. rotated 45 degrees and the initial position and pawn movements are adjusted accordingly. So I have no idea what that looks like. You're basically playing with the kind of the points, the corners at your... As your base. Yeah. So I guess that's your king is in the corner closest to you, maybe. And your piece is just kind Close of... Close around it, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, there's a few variants there. And there's millions, millions of chess variants. Um, far more chess variants than there are ministers in the New Zealand cabinet, I can tell you. But that's... Uh, what What did we finish there? 3-3 three, three or 4-4? Four, 4-4, four? Four, four, I think. Well done. That's 4-4. Four, four. You did well. That's a draw. What, what can you say to me? Get, Get right, Phil. Yeah, that's fair enough. If I can't produce a winner, I've failed in my quest as a quiz master. What do you want to talk about now? Have we talked about the Meltwater win? Yeah, I, I think did. so. I feel like we covered that. Yeah, that can disappear. Well, let's talk a little bit about my favourite chess player, Jan Napomnici. Yeah, so something we hadn't really picked up on that probably we should have done, but, you know, it's a pandemic. We get distracted easily is that Russia are still under sanction from WADA, which is one of the more fun international sporting organisations to, to say. WADA. Have, uh, yeah, aren't people, Russians aren't allowed to compete under the Russian flag. So it begs the question what he's going to compete under in November. New Zealand. Well, maybe. Maybe this is it. Maybe he's going to defect or maybe he'll just... Because Ferruja's played under the FIDE flag for a long time. Um, before he's now going to to France, isn't it? Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's where I'll end up, yeah. But whether he'll 
I mean, what, what will he do? I mean, what, what could he do? Is there any other option? Just play under no flag? Or? I guess he could just be, yeah, have no denomination for the duration. Or the Jolly match. Roger? Or mm, That would be good. I mean, what other chess... What other chess adjacent flag emojis are there like the checkered flag that would be good you could have the checkered flag. i'm just going through the all the emojis and that exist for the flags that you get so you could he could compete under the rainbow flag that would be nice i mean most chess players would compete under the if you're doing formula one they compete under the red and yellow striped flag which is oil on track marvelous some greasy players but yeah uh yeah it's just something that will be interesting to see what it kind of looks like because you just have this I don't know, you just, it just feels like this standard thing where you have those, you've seen it in the Queen's Gambit, you know, the flags next to the boards. And Well, did you see the video of a flag being taken away from a Russian player? So there's a little video clip um, from the World Women's Drafts Championship in Poland. And during the game, an official removes the Russian flag from uh, the player. And then apparently after the video finishes, the Polish player that she's playing against then removes her own flag as a kind of gesture of solidarity for the... Uh, but that doesn't make it onto the clip, I don't think. But I don't know, maybe Carlson then will do a similar thing and he'll become non-Norwegian for the duration of the match. I can't really see that, though. I feel like he'd be he'd want to keep his, his flag f- flying, I guess. Can't you just refuse to play under a flag? It seems weird that you have to play under a flag. Plausibly. What about the Marxist chess players who believe that borders are fascist? Yeah, but they'd play under the red flag. Mm, maybe. Wouldn't they? <laughs> Isn't that the... They sing the International Ali before, the, uh, <laughs> before each game. But why is it that players are associated with their nationality in the World Championships? Tell me. It's a thing that happens in every sport, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. You generally have... Do you know what I mean? You're just not representing your country? As much as you're representing yourself, isn't this kind of the the brotherhood of of sports? <laughs> this is what kind of happens. Yeah, maybe. I guess in football you don't have like domestic teams. I guess most sports where you play in a team you don't have domestic representation of international entities, mm. but you do an individual, right? Yeah. Like tennis players maybe feel like they don't make so much of it as whereas like golf players do, right? You're, they're always telling you what country golf players are from, but maybe with tennis players, it doesn't feel as though you're representing your country quite so much. But still things like the Davis Cup and... And the Ryder Cup. Yeah. I don't know. It's a mystery. Will there be any further complications by virtue of it happening in Dubai? Or is it just simply something that FIDE have to arrange? They've got to... Yeah, if FIDE want to be part of WADA, then, then they've got to abide by it. Will there be like an anti-doping protocol for the world championship i presume there must be yeah there'd be like some kind of testing yeah i mean they have it for the olympiad right they have lots of lots of random testing so it'd be no different here where yeah neither carlson nor nepo can get souped up on doping feels like a weird one for chess doesn't it? it's just it's part of fide's drive to become recognized as a sport that's the thing you can't have it both ways i suppose not is there a doping regulation for the maximum amount of caffeine you can have i presume there must be I feel like I would be in breach of that in most chess tournaments. <laughs> I think I'm like about 80% coffee at that point. What are those drugs, those study drugs that they developed? Yeah. Presumably they're not allowed. I'm looking it up now. So right, the WADA limit for caffeine is... <laughs> it is currently on WADA's monitoring list 
which means it is not prohibited, but WADA is monitoring it in case it becomes an anti-doping issue in the future. Okay. The chess community as a whole breathed the collective sigh of relief there. Yeah, I mean, there probably is a, a sort of healthy limit, isn't there? Sure. I mean, how how much caffeine would you want during a, a game? I mean, I, I, my, rule for, my rule for chess, for proper like NCL time limits, is I will have sort of normal drinks, as it were, you know, just water and um, juice uh, for the first bit. And then if, if I'm still going after four hours, then I'll get a coffee um, just to kind of have a little boost. But equally, I, could, I might get a Coke, which is the same thing, I guess. Um, yeah, it's wild, isn't it? That most of the, yeah, Red Bull, Coke, all these things are, are big sponsors of, of world sport but they're possibly not necessarily the best for, um, for the things that they... I don't know. I mean, how much... Does Gatorade have caffeine? It can't do, because I think, I think if I remember correctly, the NCAA, the US um, College Sports Association, um, do ban caffeine, I think. That rings a bell. So it can't be in Gatorade because the players in like college football all have that. Yeah, there's no caffeine in Gatorade. Right, there we go. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, the NCAA kind of does its own thing. Um, but yeah, this, this whole thing with chess and doping, I think there were a few incidences where players got defaulted for refusing to do a drugs test because they just didn't, they just thought it was stupid. But you can see their point. I think possibly Ivanchuk was one of them. Is that the FIDE position then, that if you're requested to take one at one of these events, that would be the punishment. Yeah, no, differently from Rio Ferdinand getting banned for however long it was for um, missing a couple of drugs tests, didn't he? He didn't get done for doing, he got done for missing the tests, as far as I can remember. He got much shorter ban than he would have done if he'd have failed a drugs test. Yeah, it was nine, nine months, was it? Eight months? Yeah, so chess isn't really a, a hotbed of drugs, but if you're going to, if the FIDE's drive to make it more recognised as a sport you've got to then go under the umbrella of all the the anti-cheating and anti-doping and anti-corruption and all of this stuff uh, alongside it which is fair I, I guess and it's not exactly a big deal. I'm sure Ivanchuk refused yeah so he refused to submit a urine sample in the 2008 Olympiad and um, he was therefore considered guilty of doping and um, I don't think he did get a two year ban but there was a big thing about it at the time why would you refuse to give urine sample if you weren't guilty? I think he he just lost the game and he didn't really want to be talked spoken to by anybody and he, he refused to do it mainly because he didn't want to be spoken to by anybody after a, a um after a key loss and then there was this whole thing about um yeah Fide then dropped it a few months later because they've got the randomized like airport style metal detector sweepy things they use i don't know what the official term for that is i think you got it i think you nailed it there <laughs> exactly <laughs> so the classic they use those and i think at 4ncl as well uh some of the players before the game get swept as it were uh i don't know what the punishment though is for refusing i presume you're not allowed to play but it'd be a default i might have had one i'm not sure i can't remember yeah i don't think i've yet won that particular lottery well chris clearly hasn't with the amount of caffeine flowing through his veins <laughs> sounds like he's a, a primed red bull executive there yeah they, they, they picked up all the red bull cans did they smuggle down your pants he was just happy to see you phil 
Well, that's definitely not true. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, I've got written down here chess themed dishes. Yes. I'm assuming like food dishes rather than like just dishes that are shaped like kings. Yeah, so Gary Lane, who is a British international master who now resides in Australia. So going back to this Australian thing, um, he has been immortalised in the menu of the Sydney cafe called Queenside in the I Am Gary Lane burger. I feel like this isn't an isolated incident. Aren't there multiple burgers on this menu that are named after chess players? Yes. I think I've read some people having been immortalised in this way before. But yeah, Gary Lane has been added to it. What's his burger? Well, it's very Australian. Okay. So, it's a warm bun with a fried egg, bacon, mushrooms, hash brown, vintage cheddar, crisps, and HP sauce, brown sauce. So it's like a kind of hybrid full English breakfast, right? Yeah. But with crisps. With crisps. So, I guess I'd enjoy that. I don't know. The Gary as in Kasparov, presumably, has fried egg mushrooms, garden herbs, schmickles, which are what? They're something pickles. What are schmickles? <laughs> I'm not sure I want to hazard a guess there. Oh, okay, right, fine. Ioli and smoky tomato relish. Hmm? So, yeah. Sounds lovely, to be honest. Yeah. The one local to me, there's a belly busters van that operates outside Amersham, Amersham Tube Station which was 90 seconds walk from my desk in my first job. And they did a number one, which was three full English breakfasts in a BAP about 18 inches diameter. Christ. And yeah, it would take you an afternoon to finish it at your desk. And it was amazing. And I miss it. I remember the beast pizza from my student days which was something like a 42 inch pizza that needed about six men to carry to your door <laughs> uh, that, that was a good one i forget which chain delivered the beast um, but now i've thrown it out here on air i'm sure someone will remind me but i was thinking we could maybe come up with some uh, with some other chess dishes that would be appropriate so we can do puns or we can just literally come up with new burgers <laughs> i don't know <laughs> What would a chess pit themed dish have if we were to turn the podcast into some kind of food stuff? Red Bull by the sounds of it. Yeah, I guess it would just be a can of Red Bull. I'm trying to think of puns. Could have porn cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what would the chess pit have in it? I mean, there's something we've got to have some kind of... This is episode 68. We should really have some kind of... In jokes by now. Hey, we don't really talk about food much, do we? No. We had that episode where somebody reviewed us and was saying that it was our adult improvers episode, and the review urged the listener to skip past the first however many minutes that were just recipes for stir fries. <laughs> I think. <laughs> uh, we talked about making a fruit version of stir fries. Yeah, we did. So about the first fifteen minutes is us discussing stir fries. <laughs> Um. <laughs> Incidentally, I think a fruit stir fry would be an incredible dish, uh, and if they ever invent it, I I hope that that's what we will have. I don't know, maybe a waffle with some nice. Oh uh, yeah, for the kind of chessboard effect on your waffle. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it could just be a really unhealthy. It's got to be greasy because it's got to be called the Fat Mackenzie, hasn't it? So <laughs> nice. Maybe it's just a tower of sixty-four waffles. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's just a pit full of waffles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about food now. It's really not helped me. I'm on a intermittent fasting diet at the moment, so I can't eat after eight o'clock. So just talking about food right now is not helping me at all. Are you basically doing like the the opposite of Ramadan? The opposite of Ramadan, but eating all the time. <laughs> no, as in you don't eat. You don't eat after sunset. Yeah, I eat between twelve and eight, basically, or like one and nine, and the rest of the time I don't eat. Is it like the Butterfield diet plan where you just eat continuously for those eight hours and then you stop? Basically, yeah. I don't think I eat any less than I normally would. I just end up eating the same amount in a just compressed time frame. <laughs> yeah, nice. Do you remember those, um, the, the like potato, going back to the waffles, do you remember like those ones that were in the shape of um, of letters, alpha bites that you could don't have? I think so. Oh, no. Yeah, alpha bites were great. So you could have alpha knights. Nice. Which should be good. Those are knights that are more fearsome than beta knights, presumably, right? <laughs> the knights that run the round table rather than the members of the round table. Sir Galahad, a real alpha knight. <laughs> and the gamma knights are the ones that just give you radiation poisoning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Gamma knights. Gammon's good food stuff. I feel like, John, you're just going to list foods now for the next... few however many hours it is before you can start eating again. <laughs> well, you set me off, to be honest, yeah. Oh, I could murder a pizza right now. I did just have one for dinner, sorry. It was very good. Mm. Right, we need to move on. So we arrive, <laughs> as we always do, at the, the very peak, the pinnacle, the perhaps even the, the end point of human history in many respects. If you consider time to be a spiral and the centre of that spiral to be this part of the podcast, then... In many respects, this is the thing around which all meaning orbits and draws us closer to it. It's very, very much the uh, the reason most people tune in, I'm told. Anyway, this is the part of the show where, where Chris Russell brings his not inconsiderable mind to bear on the history of chess. Sometimes events that happened even more than a month ago. And he, as we've said before, puts it through the oven of historiography and uh, <laughs> sees what pops out the other end um will it be alpha nights or will it be porn cocktail it's hard to tell but we we have arrived at christry so chris what have you got in store for us today so this week's christry victim is perhaps the first of the soviet big hitters uh, on the world stage so it's the sixth world champion uh, adept chess organizer and politician Mikhail Botvinnik. And Botvinnik was raised in St. Petersburg and he learned to play chess at age 12 and then just made extraordinarily rapid progress from there. So he won his school championships a year later. Uh, the next year he beat the reigning world champion Capablanca in a simultaneous display in Moscow. And then by the year after that, he'd qualified for the USSR championships final stage and finished in a share of fifth place. Um, so in terms of this speed of progress and the current situation that we've got regarding a sort of suspension of tournament play for about the last 18 months or so, I have a theory, which is always risky on the chess pit, but I'm going to throw it out there, that perhaps, say, the average junior in the course of over the course of 18 months might improve something like 100, maybe 150 rating over that period. Um, what effect will that have when we filter back into competitive play and we've got tournaments where even more so than normal, all of the juniors are just massively underrated? Will it lead to some kind of rating 
depression perhaps will this sort of knock an already quite inadequate rating system even further out of whack um, or will it sort of get absorbed quite quickly because my feeling is that those initial early tournaments are going to be quite unflattering on your rating performance i would suspect what do you reckon phil it seems quite likely doesn't it but it will only happen at certain bands won't it like i don't think there'll be because the the higher you get the the lower that number that a kid will have improved by will get to you'd think yeah and you'll get a little bit separated from it so i imagine it will have a kind of trickle up of trickling down effect something like that where the first flavor will be everyone kind of in the lower ends of the rating spectrum where they're playing lots of juniors will get hit first and then it will begin to then deflate some of the adults ratings and then that will pull the next band down and then the next band down and then eventually it should i don't know my, my feeling is that this might be might be a thing that we'll see the great fide rating depression will not those adults then get pulled up again because their expected score against the next strata above who haven't yet been affected would be their expected score against them would be lower so they'd go up but then the next tier would start coming back down again and then the next so everyone's eventually gonna be pulled down are they i think everyone would just post yeah it might it might lead to yeah two or three point rating depreciation over a, a year but equally it's also going to depend which areas of the world open up first yes yes because if certain places have got a bit more active then the effect will be yeah the longer it goes on that you don't have any juniors playing in federated events the bigger the gap becomes between their published ratings and their actual playing strength yeah but not just that but also if the depreciation has happened in another country and then it hasn't happened let's say you know new zealand just just throwing it out like New Zealand is. <laughs> it's a picatophical example. Yeah, but they had their first they had their first big gig this week, didn't they? Fifty thousand people at a massive festival in Eden Park. Oh. Let's say the kids in New Zealand play and that happens and they get whatever, they, they go up a hundred points. Or the, the the adult population goes down by five. If you then have if it then takes a year for tournaments in Australia to start, then again you're gonna get players with lower expected scores than they should do when those when New Zealand and Australia player pools mix. Yeah, so you might have little pockets that are kind of separated from it for a while. I don't know. It just struck me that it could... Personally, I'm kind of terrified of the uh, possibility of going straight back into a tournament where the whole entire field are hugely underrated, but maybe maybe it'll be good for me. One of the, the online games that I play is called Rocket League, and that's um, ranked by an ELO rating system. And they have seasons, so you have to sort of re-rank at the end of every season or the beginning of any any season. So I wonder if that maybe is an option, if you could just have sort of some sort of like preliminary ranking tournament or use your next 10 games as a preliminary ranking system, which maybe gives you... It, it would maybe give you more, more points than usual in a win scenario so that you've got a little bit more inflation. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, that all sounds a bit too sophisticated though right yeah and sensible i suspect that nothing will be done the system will stay the same as it usually is and then it will have a kind of throw everything off effect rather than they'll try and do something to offset it in advance possibly have you got any plans to start again chris because there are some tournaments that have been publicized yeah i'd like to i don't know exactly when i will but i've noticed as well yeah there's sort of tentative plans there seem to be for some events in the summer um Again, I, I guess probably between now and then I need to get a little bit 
closer to match ready and play a few training games and see. So it's been quite a long time. I played one in Greece last summer and that's the last competitive play I've had. I guess your gap will be much longer than that even. When did you last play a competitive game? Yeah, my last one was the, the disaster in the, in Daventry, March yeah, or the, uh, the exhaust oh. pipes. But yeah, the, the over-the-board for NCL has just been announced. The dates have just been announced for next season starting in November. So, Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I got an email through. Yeah. So, things are happening, yeah. Mm. I should, guess I should probably return to talking about Botvinnik, given we've digressed <laughs> massively. So, he won his first Soviet championships, age 20, uh, and then retained his title two years later. But he hadn't yet tested himself on the world stage. And at this time, so we're talking the 1930s, the Soviet champs probably weren't yet such a big deal. And he played his first international tournament in Hastings in 1934, where he finished on five out of nine in a tie for fifth place. And Lasker put Botvinnik's performance down to poor preparation. So he'd only arrived at the uh, venue two hours before round one, perhaps only arrived in Hastings two hours before the first game. And Lasker recommended that you should arrive 10 days before and have an acclimatisation period, uh, which I guess sounds a bit like uh, your four NCL preparations again, Phil, of turning up. You're always there 10 days before, right? Doing your kind of getting used to Telford. At least two weeks, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Becoming a kind of Telford resident. Um, and then in 36, Botvinnik was invited to Nottingham uh, and his new wife, so they'd just got married the year before, was allowed to accompany him, which apparently was a, a rare privilege for Soviet chess players travelling to overseas events. And Botvinnik smashed it, so he scored six wins and eight draws and finished in a tie for first place with Capablanca, which was the first tournament victory overseas by a Soviet master at the time. And this was the kind of start of the Soviet dominance era uh, that was to follow. So the kind of middle uh, to end game of Botvinnik's career consisted of four more Soviet champion titles. And it wasn't until he was 37 before he first won the world championships, which was a really peculiar world championships, the 1948 event, which was a quintuple round robin tournament um, to determine the successor to Aljekin, who'd uh, died and there was a kind of interregnum period of no world champion and then that was where the sort of politics of how on earth they'd decide who the next world champion would be and they came up with this weird format um, of 20 games played by each of these five players and Botvinnik scored 14 out of 20 and Smyslov got 11, Kerez and Ryshevsky 10 and a half and Erva finished on 4 out of 20 and Botvinnik had three stints altogether as world champion before his retirement age 59 from competitive chess in 1970 and at that point he focused on training the next generation of the Soviet school so he's a sort of big figure in that movement and the whole kind of dominance that followed. Um, so in terms of dominance at the moment my last point on it is that there hasn't really been. Do you think Magnus will start a new era of Norwegian dominance in chess? I can't really see it to be honest. <laughs> Only if he wins it for the next 50 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah perhaps. <laughs> Who's next, do we think? Where is the next sort of Soviet school going to be? Well, Uzbekistan, aren't doing that thing, aren't they? Oh, yeah. I think Iran, maybe, somewhere like that. Uh, that's true. Um, and India, I guess, can't be too far away from making I mean, a... India, that's already happened, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, this is... But yeah, somewhere in... The, somewhere in um, yeah, Iran seems like a reasonable candidate for... 
not domination necessarily, but this kind of next school of mm. yeah, people following. Um, I mean, it's all very complicated, of course, with WADA again, having Faruja having to do things there and sanctions and therefore, but clearly there's, they're producing a, a lot of very good players. You've got Mark Sudlu as well. Yeah. yeah, he's a beast. Well, time is running on. Does anyone want a silly question before we finish? Go yeah, for it. Sure. It's not really that silly, but... Don't bother then. <laughs> I've had in the background the uh, the Champions League semi-final on while we've been recording and um, Chelsea are now through to the to the final of the Champions League alongside Manchester City. And obviously we've just had all of the candidates stuff going on as well. We've talked about this before, but I wonder what both of you think about in terms of whether or not you think it'd be more fun if the world champion was decided by a Champions League style tournament rather than the candidates tournament that we have that then ends in this sort of long game between two people. Um, Obviously, if you did it that way, you would have much more um, variability in terms of who was going to win the whole thing because you would have much more variability on who got in. There would maybe be a little bit more luck involved. Uh, But, you know, if you had, I don't know, if you had like 16 players involved, group four groups of four, play around Robin in the groups and then top of one group plays the second place in another group and then you go through that way into, I guess, quarters and semis and finals. Do you think that would be more in- interesting? Do you think that would be a, a bigger pull for chess than the current candidates structure? So you've got no benefit as being the reigning world champion? I guess you'd have you'd have seedings, I suspect. So you'd probably have some sort of benefit from that. Uh, but yeah, you're still... You still got to win a lot of games to to get there, and I guess you have the the loss of advantage of having a good long time to know who your opponent's going to be, probably, um, so you can prepare for that um, as well. So I don't know. Part of me just kind of thinks it would be quite fun to have a a format like that for the World Championship because it would feel a little bit more. It would feel a bit more lucky, perhaps, and maybe it wouldn't be quite so satisfying for everyone. But um, it would also mean that you would. You know, if if you had someone like Anish Giri having a good run like he did in the second half of the candidates, he he might actually just come through that week, and you'd have a a, a, diff, a very different proposition. But I suppose the problem with this is that there's been very much a, an approach to the to the World Championship, which is it, it's almost like the divine right of kings, right? You have to pass it on to from one person to another, which I, I think would be lost definitely. So perhaps the Champions League needs to move closer to the Chess World Championship model, right? I've thought about this, actually. Chelsea and Man City should play 14 games against each other. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine if that was how they did it, though? I've always wondered about whether or not that would be fun with, you know, the the incumbent champion not having to play anything. And then playing some massive match. Maybe only just the one match, but even if they okay. did, even if they structurally did it the same way. It would be it would be interesting, wouldn't it? If if you, I mean, which is the way that European tournament is supposed to be working, moving right with the European Super League, right? This idea that you get to a scenario where you you are guaranteed a place in the in the tournament next next time round. Imagine if you could do it with like the champion being guaranteed a place in the final the next year. Um, but I don't know what you guys think of that in terms of the particularly entertainment quality of the of the spectacle. I don't hate the idea of having a knockout, but yeah, the, the current World Cup format happens far too quickly. It's based on nowhere near enough games. If you were going to then shove that as the as the World Championship format, I'm not at all against it being a thing where you get lots of matches. Yeah, some kind of match play knockout format. Yeah, because the Champions League takes, what, 10 months to complete. You could have that 
kind of uh, going ahead where yeah it, you could have what a couple of months between between rounds if it was over 16 so you start with a match of say so we could just go 8 10 12 14 couldn't you round of 16 round of eight semi-finals and then final um you'd have the same rapid and rapid and blitz tie breaks i guess yeah, I'm, I'm not against that at all. The, the problem for this is that it's so much more time intensive that you'd need more more prize money, you'd need bigger prize fund for players to basically agree to do this because it takes them a, a lot more prep to play. I, I, possibly, I mean, do you think it takes more prep to do a an eight-game match against one player than a 14 games against eight or seven? Probably not massively. It's just you're talking the scale, right, that it's... You've got round after round happening across a period of time that would be new. I guess if you got rid of the candidates tournament altogether, how many games are there in that? Well, no, there's just 56 games in that. Okay, so you've already got 56 games to play with there. And say, say you play home and away in the in the round robins with four players. So you, each player plays as black and white. So that's how many games is that? Yeah, but you'd need more. That's the point. You'd need more than two games. Why though? Because you only get two games in the candidates. Why not just do the, the the group stages as black and white versus everyone in your group, and then you could do like they do in the baseball, whatever it is, three, five, and seven ascending as you go up, um, so that you get a decent chunk of games for the final. But, yeah, but the amount of travel time for this is colossal. Well, you'd be all in the same space, right? You'd do it all in. Well, so you you want the World Cup? No, I'm sorry. no, I don't think that's going to work. I think that's just the World Cup. But if you had it over 10 months where you just had proper eight-game matches in a neutral venue every couple of months at each stage rather than some kind of group system. But why does no one care about the World Cup and not the the World Championship? I guess it's this problem that the World Cup is too susceptible to randomness, that you don't have enough time over a two-game match that it's too... Particularly given the margins are quite narrow between the players at that point. It's just the same is true of all sports, though, isn't it? There's a huge amount of randomness yeah. in, in the World Cup, and yeah, I guess the World Cup isn't really a celebration of wonderful football in many respects. So maybe that's the, where everything falls down. But I genuinely do think that there would be a it would be a fairly fun thing just to have a tournament that you know you started and ended in a knockout style, and you felt as though you got the best players in the world. But you have that. You have the World Cup, and the winner, the, the, the two finalists, get to the candidates, and that's. So maybe the current system is good. But if you changed it round and did it the other way around, obviously the World Championship would mean that you would give much more attention to the World Cup-style format rather than the candidate-style one. Yeah, but FIDE did this. FIDE did this for years in between in between um, you know, when it was all uh, separated and you got bizarre FIDE world champions, frankly. People well outside the top 20 in the world winning that and it it showed up the format as um, not necessarily being the most conducive to finding... I mean, there's no such thing as a correct champion, but equally you don't want it to be... You don't want to have... But maybe that's John's point, right? That maybe you do, for the spectators, you do want a bit of extra chaos in the system and you do want it to churn out the occasional random winner yeah the occasional but it happened every time didn't it i mean yeah there were quite a lot of silly winners yeah i mean it's always good to have a leicester city or a greece occasionally but yeah i don't know i think the whole thing i think two games be fine if you had the only 16 players in it though right it wouldn't be an issue for any of the top 16 to become the world champion isn't the narrative of the world championship having the oh yeah having these longer matches isn't that i mean how 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 many matches is the final? Is it still 14? 
No, no, you do seven. So that's what I was saying. You do two matches in the group stages and then and then you do three, five, seven, nine, whatever, keep going up as you go further through the tournament for each stage. And yeah, obviously there's still that level of randomness there, but um I still think I think I still think that would be fine if you just had the top if you made sure it was the top sixteen and you make the top sixteen quite competitive. So there's stuff for people to play for to get into the top sixteen. Because part of the problem with the with chess is that you like if you're someone like Anish Giri, like you've just got to hope that you get lucky in a two-week competition to be able to have a chance of being the world champion. I do agree that eight is too few. Eight is too few. I think. Yeah. For me, it would sort of maybe solve that problem a little bit, especially because you're saying you could have potentially two different players every year in the tournament as well, which I think would would change it um, for sure. Um, it it just gives it a bit more variability and it means that you're going to have some players who are going to have a chance of being the world champion because there'll be players I think who are at some time probably the best player in the world but because that doesn't actually fall within the certain time frame yeah. you're just losing out based on the fact that you have a two year window to 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 fall into to be the best in the world so it's also massively favouring for someone like the reason why you get long tranches of world champions is because it's so much easier for the guy who's won it to win it again than it is for the other person to actually get through and, and, and actually overturn the incumbent yeah I think eight may be too few actually thinking about it maybe you need 16 player candidates tournaments Maybe they should do a 16-player candidates tournament and don't guarantee that the the champion is in it every time. So he's got to re-qualify. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're at least going to have... You only have to be one of the top two players in the world, right? In that in that period in order to have your chance of being the world champion. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's silly as well, but it just seems like it's so ring-fenced and gate-kept or whatever that, that, you know, once you're in, like, like Magnus is... Obviously, like he's still a lot of work for him to do, but the odds are stacked in his favour to win this, right? Over against other other people. Now, obviously, that's partly because he's the best player in the world, but it's also like the fact that he doesn't have to worry about anything. He literally has to worry about fourteen games, and that's it. Now, every two years. Yeah. Anyway, time has run on. Uh, we could probably talk about this a long time, but uh, if you do like what we do and want to find out more of it, do head to your social media platform of choice, search for Chess Pit Pod, and if we exist on that platform of choice, then we will pop up. Uh, we should also say thank you to our sponsors, Playfair Capital. Playfair Capital is one of London's v- leading venture capital funds. And with that, we arrive at the end of the podcast. And so all there is for me to do is to say thank you, Phil. Thank you. And thank you, Chris. Thanks very much. And we'll see you on the flip side. Thank you.